Well, the sermon this morning is not going to be on Exodus chapter 19. Uh, I had started working on our next beatitude for a visit here in a couple of weeks, but uh, apparently the Lord wants us to hear this one a few weeks early. Uh, I suppose, um, in all seriousness, one danger of reflecting on these beatitudes individually as we've been doing, as I've been visiting, uh, is that it could give us the impression that each of these beatitudes is independent from the other ones, that we could just sort of take them as one-offs, almost like they describe eight different kinds of people. As if we could announce after the service that the poor in spirit will meet here in the sanctuary, uh, the mourners will gather downstairs, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will congregate in the fellowship hall, and so on and so on. Uh, the Beatitudes, I trust you know, aren't describing eight kinds of people. Uh, they're describing one kind of person, the person who experiences the blessedness of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, and those who know their spiritual poverty uh, also mourn. Those who mourn wait for God in meekness. Those who wait hunger and thirst for righteousness and respond to a world with the mercy they've received and so on and so on. Each beatitude is kind of a different angle or facet on being part of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, if I were, though, to break us up into groups based on uh, the beatitudes, I'm not sure how many people would show up if I announced, let's have those who are pure in heart join me in the church library. Uh, this morning's beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is a little troubling. Uh, don't we know just how impure our hearts are? Isn't there even a, a verse in Proverbs, who can say, I have made my heart pure? Is purity of heart even possible for us as sinners? Uh, so I want to consider the two parts of this sixth beatitude uh, together this morning. What is the purity of heart that God blesses? Uh, and what does it mean that the pure in heart will see God? Uh, and again, the first point is considerably longer than the second, so don't get nervous if it goes on for a little while. Uh, but first, let's hear the, all the beatitudes uh, together again. Listen to the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So who are the pure in heart? And what does that even mean? I think for a lot of people, uh, they hear the word pure in heart and they think sinless heart. Of course, if Jesus was blessing people with sinless hearts, he'd really only be blessing himself. Purity here does not mean sinlessness. Uh, we've already said that the pure in heart are the same people who know their spiritual poverty, who mourn their sin, who long for more righteousness in the world and in their own lives, who share the same mercy that they've received. The word pure in a pure heart has the same sense as it does in pure olive oil or pure gold. It refers to something unmixed, something free from contaminants. We could say it this way, if something, it is, if something is pure, it is all one thing rather than divided up into many or even just a few things. And the word heart in the Bible is not primarily the organ that pumps blood through your body. It's the seat of the human will. It's the center of our intellect, our emotions, and especially our intentions. So I think uh, Kierkegaard captures the meaning of both of these words when he says that purity of heart is to will one thing. So something pure is one thing in your heart is the agent of your will. And so purity of heart is to will one thing. David said, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after to dwell in his house and gaze on his beauty. Technically, that's two things, but don't tell David that. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted about many things, but there is only one thing that is needful. And Moses commanded Israel in Deuteronomy 6 that they should love the Lord their God, not with some of their heart or even most of their heart, but with their whole heart and strength and mind. Uh, now, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's drawing language from the Psalms. Psalm 24 asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Externally, clean hands, and internally, pure heart, they are willing one thing. They are focused on God. The point is not that they are perfect. The point is not that they are sinless. The point is that they are integrated. They are one whole person or self in relationship to God. They are not one thing on the outside, their hands, 
and another thing on the inside, their heart, they are the same, the external and the internal match. And they're honest about that. Uh, there's integrity. We would say they're sincere in their devotion to the Lord. That's that sense of purity of heart. It's uh, a sincerity uh, and an integrity of devotion. The opposite of a pure heart would be a divided heart, right? Something that is compartmentalized or not just one thing. Solomon was a man with a divided heart, remember? The scripture says he loved the Lord and his many foreign wives and, you know, their God and his wealth and his chariots and everything else. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes a divided heart as someone who serves two masters. And James, in James chapter 4, calls it being double-minded. Remember, he says, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Sometimes you just got to throw out that word ye. It sounds so good. Uh, ye double-minded. The opposite of a pure heart is being double-minded. It is to think and will two things rather than to think and will one thing. So purity of heart means that at the center of your being, you are focused on the Lord and you are genuine and sincere in willing one thing, which is to do God's will in your being, your heart, and your doing, your hands. Now, if a pure heart still sounds as unattainable to you as a sinless heart, I want to take a look at another psalm that I believe that Jesus is drawing from when he uses this phrase, pure in heart. Another psalm that is also about purity of heart, and that is Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, and it begins this way. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. If God is good to you, uh, he gives you grace. He blesses you. We, we could even say God is good to the pure in heart, as a paraphrase of Psalm 73. Or God blesses the pure in heart. Does that sound familiar? God blesses the pure in heart? That's our beatitude. But the psalmist in Psalm 73 had a crisis of faith. In verse 2, he says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. The psalmist temporarily lost his purity of heart. The psalmist stopped being singularly focused on God. His heart became for a time contaminated. Now, what was it that caused this contamination, this division uh, in the psalmist's heart? Well, we learn about it in verse 3 of the psalm. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verses 4 through 11 of the psalm, the psalmist talks about all the ways that he came to resent the good fortune 
of the wicked. He says, you know, they've got physical health, they've got strong bodies and no pain, and they're free from all the ills that plague other people. And they've got not just physical health, they've got financial health. They're increasing in riches to the point where their eyes are just swelling with fatness. They've also got mental health, they live carefree lives, they're untroubled, they're happy and content. And as the psalmist's heart became filled with envy, he became more and more frustrated. And then in verses 13 and 14 of the psalm, he says this, All in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Do you hear the echo there of Psalm 24? The psalmist is saying, you know what? I'm following the Lord for nothing. What was the point of all of that Psalm 24 stuff? Clean hands, pure heart. What did I get out of it compared to other people? Nothing at all. And his heart became divided. Envy is a contaminant. It pollutes our ability to will one thing. It's like the lead in the water in Flint, Michigan. It's so easy to go through life focused not just on the Lord, but on other people, and it becomes poisonous to our souls. Why do they have it so good? Why are they so gifted or talented or beautiful? Why do they get away with everything? And I get away with nothing. I can't even board early with the earlier boarding groups when I try to sneak in, you know. I don't get away with anything. Other people get away with murder. What has serving God gotten me? That's the opposite of a pure heart. A pure heart is the opposite of an envious heart, an angry heart, a bitter heart, a heart that is focused on what other people doing. A pure heart is focused on who God is and what God is doing. Envy, self-pity, which is just really another form of envy. Oh, poor me, I'm not like other people. Anger, bitterness, all of these things turn our hearts away from God and move us away from purity of heart. I'll be honest, I worry that much of the hand-wringing and frustration from people of faith about our current cultural turmoil is this kind of thing. It sounds righteous, it sounds like a concern about uh, you know, evil and morality, but it is actually polluting our purity of heart and our ability to will one thing because we are fixing our heart not on God and on a relationship with Him, but to other people and what they are doing or getting away with. If you find as you engage in news or social media or have conversations about what is happening in the world, that you are becoming less meek, less merciful, more angry, that is a good sign 
that you are losing purity of heart. You might be like Asaph in this psalm. By the way, according to Chronicles, Asaph was the chief worship leader in the tabernacle. Uh, he was a guy who knew his stuff and he was close to the Lord, and even he struggled with purity of heart. Uh, psalm 73 here, if you know it, has one of the greatest turns, I think, in the Bible. Here is the psalmist. He's full of inner emotional turmoil and envy. The state of the world makes no sense to him. He's distressed and angry in his heart. We read in verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Uh, I love that phrase. The psalmist sets his inner turmoil in the framework of God's revelation of himself. Uh, it's important to say this. There's nothing wrong with emotional turmoil, but you've got to bring it into the orbit of God's revelation that happens in the sanctuary. There's nothing wrong with distress. What do you do with it? You bring it into the presence and the orbit uh, of God's revelation of himself. And the result of that in Psalm 73, when, when Asaph does that, when he enters into the sanctuary of God, is that he regains his purity of heart. And in the second half of the psalm, which I hope you'll read it in the afternoon, in the second half of the psalm, instead of a long section about how good the wicked have it, which is what the first half of the psalm is, there's a long section describing how good those who focus on God have it. In verse 23, the psalmist says, I am continually with you and you hold my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me by your counsel and receive me into glory. 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the psalm ends with a great confession. But for me, it is good to be near God. That is purity of heart. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. That is to will one thing. It is good for me to be near God. That is to will one thing. It's not what I get from God. It's that I get him. That's the one thing. You hold my hand. You guide me. You are the strength of my heart. That is willing the one thing. I think Psalm 73 is so important for us because it shows us this. Purity of heart is not a spiritual plane that we reach or we achieve. It is a discipline of grace that we are constantly growing in. It's not a spiritual plane that we reach, achieve, once we're there, we're good. It's a spiritual discipline that we are growing in. It happens when we bring our struggles into the presence of God. Our hearts are divided. They're pulled in all of these different directions. We're stumbling and almost falling a hundred times 
but we come back to the sanctuary, the place where God reveals himself to see who he is, and then we say, you, Lord, are the strength of my heart. You, Lord, are the only thing I desire. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If you are pure in heart, you will the one thing. You long to encounter God above all else. You long to see God above all else. And that is the blessing that you get according to this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's briefly look at the second part of the beatitude. Seeing God is the whole purpose of religion. If God is the source of all beauty, if God is the source of all truth, if God is the source of all glory, there is nothing more breathtaking and more satisfying and more transforming than to see him as he is. So in theology, this is called the beatific vision, the visio dei. It's a big theme in scripture, and it's also kind of a problematic one. Because when Moses wants to see God's glory, God says, no one can see my face and live. Paul says to Timothy that God is invisible, that he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And yet, as we're reading the scriptures, people do see God. And when they do, they understand that something very dangerous is happening. Jacob wrestles with the angel and names the place where he wrestled Peniel. He says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah, the father of Samson and his wife. And Manoah said, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders, ate and drank with God in a communion service on the mountain. Exodus says, they saw the God of Israel, and then adds, but he did not lay a finger, did not lay a hand on any of them. It's a dangerous activity to see God. And yet, the great promise of Scripture is that the heart that is fixed on God will see him. Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him, and they will see his face. Jonathan Edwards says this, the pleasure of seeing God will be so great and so strong that it will take the full possession of our heart and fill it brimful to the brim so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. You hear what Edwards is saying? He's saying it's not just that the pure in heart get to see God. It's that there will be a kind of seeing God that so captivates and purifies our heart, there's not any room left for anything else 
on that, excuse me, on that day. This beatitude is pointing forward to a time when people can look God in the face without shame or fear or danger. To see God in the way that is like the culmination of our salvation, the supreme happiness, the supreme blessing, that those who fix their attention on God will receive the ultimate reward of seeing Him. Now, what does that really mean to see God face to face? Does it mean that we'll see God and the divine essence in the same way that we see a house or a car? Is it sort of figurative or metaphorical for a fully restored relationship to God? Will we behold God in an unmediated, unfiltered way directly, or will it still be mediated somehow through Christ? That's a theological debate that's been going on for a long time. Here's the answer. No one can tell you any of these things because no one this side of glory has experienced this kind of seeing. But we know this because 1 John 3 says it. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The heart that focuses on God will see God and become like him. Uh, of course, seeing God is not a purely future event. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory in Jesus we have beheld the unseen God, right? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the proverb is true that we cannot purify our own hearts. But Jesus has come to cleanse and purify us through his sacrifice and death and resurrection. And it is because of his work of redemption that our hearts can be pure in the first place. It was his singular devotion to God at the core of his being that took him to the cross for us. And that's why if you want to grow in your purity of heart, you come to him. Uh, I came across a great uh, comment this week uh, from, from an old professor who said, we obtain purity of heart not by our imitation of Christ, but by our incorporation into Christ. We obtain it not by our imitation of Christ, but our incorporation into Christ. Paul puts it this way, and I'll close with this verse. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As you hope in him, you purify yourself as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Uh, for this blessing on the pure in heart. We want to be whole people. We want to be integrated people. We want the inside and the outside to match. And so we pray as we come to Jesus that you would remove the divisions in our heart, the compartments in our heart, the, se the sections in our heart, so that you would be the one thing 
that we will. And as we look on Jesus, we pray, would you continually purify us until that day uh, that we see him as he is. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen.